Nine, 60 seconds. Best recorders, high speed. Five. Open solo fuel four, vent. Open. Three, two, one, zero. Welcome to the next episode of the Crossroads podcast, which is prepared jointly by the Alarm magazine and the Strategy AV21 of the Czech Academy of Sciences. Our today's guest is uh, Professor Christophe Jacholo. Uh, welcome, Christophe. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Christophe Jacholo is Professor of Indian Politics and Sociology at King's College London. Then he is with the Centre National de Recherche Scientifique and the Centre d'Études et Recherche Internationale at Sciences Po in Paris. And he is also the president of the French Political Science Association. So you can see that Professor Jaffrelot is a man of immense knowledge and expertise. And today we will discuss his new book named Modi's India, Hindu Nationalism and the Rise of Ethnic Democracy, which was published in Princeton University Press. Uh, Christoph, uh, is this your thickest or heaviest book? No, I'm used to this kind of big books. My previous books were um, equally long. Uh, the first one uh, on uh, Indonesianism already, published in 1996, was uh, 650 pages long. And the, the, the last, the, the previous one um, that I co-authored with uh, Pratinav Anil, on the emergency uh, phase of Indian history when democracy was suspended uh, was also of the same length. So I, I like details. I think the devil is in the details. And um, if you do not give details, people are not fully informed. Mm -hmm. The book is so huge that it's a kind of a chronicle of state capture, rise of authoritarianism in India, and its transition from, let's say, conservative democracy to ethnic democracy. It's kind of difficult to choose one single topic from the book. So I will start at the current situation and the current events. Obviously, I'm talking about the withdrawal of uh, the agriculture reform, which uh, was made by the Indian government uh, at the end of November 2021. And uh, therefore, my question would be, do you think that this withdrawal of the reforms will shake the position of Narendra Modi uh, as a strong and decisive leader, which is something he builds on? No, certainly uh, it uh, it is um, a turning point. Um, maybe not a big one, but a turning point uh, in the sense that uh, Narendra Modi had not withdrawn any of his um, laws or uh, decisions um, over the last six, seven years. In fact, he had to do it only once, immediately after taking over power. 
Uh, and that was a law that was also about the peasantry. But this is a different story because this law, these three laws, in fact, uh, had been passed uh, one year ago. So for one year, there was a mobilization of peasants. They were adamant. Uh, 700 of them died in the process uh, because of uh, uh, the weather conditions, uh, because of illness, including COVID, and because of repression, of course. So uh, to, to withdraw the laws after so much hardship, after such a long time, is a different story. It means that uh, most probably the risk of unpopularity was such that Narendra Modi preferred to to, to, to step back. Uh, there are elections, there'll be elections uh, next year, but early next year, in February, March at the latest, in a very important state, Uttar Pradesh, the largest state of India, 200 million people. And um, BGP is uh, in office. Narendra Modi's party is ruling the state for five years. This is an important election that uh, probably Narendra Modi feared BGP may lose if it lost the uh, peasants' vote. That's probably why he has made this decision. Whether that will be sufficient for not losing the peasants' vote remains to be seen, of course, but uh, uh, it was the main explanation and uh, and and that's why uh, he has behaved in a different way uh, com compared to the way uh, he, he has behaved in the past if if he continues to somewhat uh, bow to public opinion and other groups then we will say that was a real turning point and the strong man is replaced by another uh, character. Uh, something that is quite possible because he has also changed his, his look. He has grown a beard. He uh, tends to represent a sage, uh, a guru in a way, uh, rather than uh, a strong man, uh, or at least along with uh, a strong man. Uh, whether this is a new repertoire, whether he's shifting from one repertoire to the other repertoire, Will be will be something we'll watch uh, in the coming months and years. Okay, thank you. Actually, I have chosen this question on purpose because you know this issue combines uh, two of like the many facets of uh, Narendra Modi's populism. One of them is, uh, let's say, kind of. Uh, concentration and focus on the neo middle class uh, and kind of a you said you describe it as a sacrifice of the peasants for the interest of city dwellers so now narendra modi actually bows in front of the vote of the peasants and the second one is uh, another part of narendra modi's success which is kind of overemphasizing of uh, international and even intranational terrorism uh, which you describe as one of the 
key components of his rise to power, not only in his home Gujarat, but also in India. So that's uh, why I'm asking, because we can see that uh, he is taking a step back uh, from uh, like two of his positions, which were quite uh, constant and uh, seemed unshakable. Well, yes and no, uh, because it's not because he withdraws the farmer's laws that is not trying to cultivate his popularity among the urban dwellers. It would be the case, it would be the case if he did not only withdraw the laws, but also tell the peasants, now we will pay the right price for your products. Because that's what the peasants ask for, you know. Uh, they, they, they are not against these laws for the for the pleasure of being against these laws. They are against these laws because they fear that these laws would have privatized agriculture, would have uh, enabled agro-food businesses to somewhat uh, become dominant on the market. And, and they are already very much impoverished and therefore uh, wanted to be reassured that they would good they would get a good a good price on the market for their product and for the moment narendra modi has not said anything about that and that's why by the way the peasants are not back in their farms no they are still mobilizing they are asking for what they call minimum support prices no? well what is called not what they call but what is called minimum support prices and they want a law uh, making sure that uh, these prices uh, are, are improved let's see whether this is decided uh, and, and and whether in that case Narendra Modi will do something against his urban support base and the other point that you made um, very interestingly regarding um, terrorism uh, indeed has something to do with uh, the uh, farmers movement because these farmers when they were sick people uh, sick people were uh, overrepresented certainly in this movement because there are many many farmers uh, coming from Punjab Aryana who, who are sick and um, the media portrayed these uh, sick demonstrators as Kalistanis, if you want separatists, people who wanted a, a separate state uh, for, uh, for them in Punjab. And that was in relation to a movement that had um, taken place in the 80s and 90s when uh, there was a, a separatist movement at work in Punjab. Well, farmers are not separatists. Uh, the Sikh people who were um, demonstrating were not for Khalistan. They were for good price, good, a better life. Uh, Narendra Modi in, has, not, has not indulged in this repertoire too much, uh, but he has not forgotten about uh, Islamism as one of the equivalent for terrorism. So we will see what the next election campaign in Uttar Pradesh uh, will tell us. But it's not because he, he, he has not so much spoken about uh, Khalistan that is not prepared to exploit the fear of terrorism again, as he has done, as you said, in the past.
you know, again, we are coming to Uttar Pradesh and it's also something which is kind of intertwined in, in all your books, in all your works, because I have read also your book about the silent revolution. Uh, and uh, the silent revolution means the rise of the lower caste in 1990s and uh, after the year 2000, obviously. But uh, you also mentioned that uh, the rise of the BJP, of Narendra Modi and of Sankh Parivar is uh, connected, is actually a direct response uh, to this silent revolution, to the rise of the lower caste, which happened primarily in Uttar Pradesh and uh, the nation populism is a kind of a reaction. Uh, the nation populism uh, which can be described as an ideology of the Hindu elites uh, if you agree and uh, maybe uh, this would provoke uh, a question uh, I was thinking I actually I'm thinking about it uh, quite often I always remember the article of uh, Amrita Basu which is called mass movement or elite conspiracy uh, which is, was written some 20 years ago and uh, you know Every time when the Hindu nationalism is discussed, uh, I'm always asking myself, is it still an elite conspiracy or have they reached the point where it became the mass movement? If I read your book, uh, you it seems to me that you are still uh, on the side of the elite conspiracy, that uh, the Hindu nationalism is still like an elite ideology, the elites, uh, the, the ideology of the upper classes, upper castes, uh, or the neo-middle class. Uh, but obviously, uh, Narendra Modi started to collect votes also from the lower classes, uh, lower castes. Uh, can you maybe elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, there's no contradiction. You can have an elite conspiracy resulting in a mass movement. And, and this is what um, Narendra Modi has achieved. Indeed, the support base, the core base of BJP uh, has traditionally been upper caste, Brahmins, Rajputs, Vaish, um, in North India and in Western India primarily. These people were definitely very much affected by the um, positive discrimination programs implemented after 1990. Well, affected at least afraid of this program because they, they feared that some of their jobs in the bureaucracy, in the public sector at large, would be taken by low caste groups, which we are now benefiting from a 27% quota. After 1990, you have 49% of the jobs in the public sector, including the bureaucracy, including the public enterprises, reserved for either low caste groups or, or, or tribals. Uh, so they had to find an antidote to this rise of plebeians. And Hindu nationalism was the ideal antidote because the Hindu nationalist could say, look, forget about your caste. The real enemy is not the Brahmin, is not the upper caste person, is the Muslim. And Pakistan, 
because Muslims can be portrayed as fifth columnists working for Pakistan. And that they've tried, they've tried that immediately after the positive discrimination measures were announced in 1990. You know, they were announced on the 15th of August 1990, and, on, and in September 1990, you have a, a huge movement for the building of a temple in, in Ayodhya, in northern India, that is supposed to erase caste and replace caste by religious identity. But that has not taken them very far because they could not bring in precisely plebeians. And it remained an elite party, at least an, a middle-class party. Narendra Modi has brought the plus vote of plebeians, first of all because he is one of them. He, he comes from a low-caste groups, uh, from a low-caste group. Uh, he is an OBC, or the backward class. Uh, he, 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 that's what OBC means. And secondly, not only because he is one of them, but also because he speaks like them, for them. I am the people. And this is, this is populism. But it is a variant of populism, uh, national populism, as you said, because the people he speaks for, in the behalf of whom he speaks, is made of the sons of the soil, made, made of the majority, of the Hindu majority. And this national populism has been very effective because it could bring together groups which were not only uh, upper caste, but which were but made of Hindus. And it could tell them, I'm representing you, I'm defending you, and I'm defending you against elites against the establishment, against the Nehru Gandhi dynasty, against the English-speaking press. You know, he's, he's very keen on vernaculars. He speaks Hindi, uh, not English that often. So this plebeian dimension, this popular dimension was very much there. And when he took over power on the basis of this repertoire, uh, he implemented policies which were very interesting because they were designed in the name of the people for defending the people, but in practice, they were really pro-rich policies. You know, take two examples. Taxation. Taxation has been, in, I mean, taxes have been increased, indirect taxes have increased like never before in India. You know, taxes on uh, petrol, for instance, any petroleum product. When at the same time, direct taxes and the wealth taxes, for instance, just disappeared or were reduced. And second example is you add programs, pro-poor programs that had been implemented, initiated by the previous government. One of them was the national revenue uh, NRAGA, Guaranteed for uh, Guaranteed Employment um, Act. The NRAGA said all the families, rural families, affected by unemployment would get 100 days of work or 100 days of minimal, minimum wages. That is something that has not been um, supported by Narendra Modi, who 
supported another kind of welfareism, uh, but what I call politics of dignity. Uh, instead of giving money, he gave respect. He gave dignity by building latrines to the poor to make India an open defecation-free country, by uh, giving um, gas cylinders, but one shot, and uh, most of the families could not do any refill, or by giving uh, uh, plastic cards, uh, bank account. There is no money on the bank account, but but you open an, an, a bank account in the name of the person, woman mostly. The, the, these programs were mostly um, directed in favor of, of women. And they were great in, 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 in their intentions and they are useful, but they are not intended to do any socio-economic redistribution. They are a new form of welfareism and uh, based on symbols more than on spendings. So these, these policies are a reconfirmation of the pro-rich agenda, and of course on the top of it, and I'll close with that, the crony capitalists, the friends among the businessmen of, of the regime have benefited more than anybody else. Uh, the meteoric rise of Gautama Dani, who has become the second richest man in India in 20 years. He was not at all known by anybody almost uh, 20 years ago. Uh, this is a symbol, a symbol of, of this uh, chronic capitalism. Okay, thank you. It was actually something I wanted to touch before, but uh, it seems you already answered my questions. I w wanted to, you know, because I know that you have been cooperated with the CSDS in the recent years and you were analyzing the election results and you were actually analyzing precisely this policy and politics uh, focused on the poor voters and uh, the peasants and uh, rural poor and uh, the other ones. Uh, So maybe we shall move to another topic which is uh, omnipresent in your book and it's uh, the organizational strength of the Sang Parivar, of the mother organization or, or let's say like the cluster of mother organization uh, of the BJP. Uh, and uh, what uh, I wanted to ask and to, which is the most interesting point you make uh, in the book is the notion of the parallel state or the deep state uh, actually you are you are saying that uh, india even cannot be considered a deep state uh, you say that uh, the deep state in india in the form of uh, the rss uh, the rashtri swamsevak sang and the other sang parivar organizations uh, was present in india just before and uh, now uh, the time has come where they can act openly can you maybe describe this transition and what do you exactly mean just you know to summarize the main thought from the book this is the second part of the book and the, the first part is on national populism that we have just uh, dealt with and the second part of the book is is on this um, ethnic democracy uh, syndrome 
Um, ethnic democracy is is a notion coming from from Israel, by the way. It, it has been codified by uh, Sami Smoa, who is a political scientist, um, describing Israel, uh, who describes Israel as as an ethnic democracy. Because it's a democracy, uh, people vote. Uh, you have uh, a rather independent judiciary. You have a rather free press. But some citizens are more equal than others, uh, to paraphrase George Orwell. You know, the idea is that um, the majority, the sons of the soil, once again, the Jews, um, are first-class citizens and Arabs, Palestinians uh, are second-class citizens with different rights. And this is de jure because Israel is a Jewish state. India is inventing a de facto ethnic democracy because the constitution has not changed. Every citizen is supposed to be equal. But in practice, it's not what we see. And it's not what we see for the reasons you've just mentioned because of the activities of the Song Parivar, of um, in particular vigilante groups. And these groups have created a kind of parallel state. You know, you have the official state, you have the police, but you have these groups patrolling the highways, keeping an eye on Muslims on the university campuses, and uh, in the streets um, at large for three kinds of goals. One, what they call their fight against land jihad, to make sure that there is no mixity in the Indian cities, uh, to make sure that uh, pockets of minorities uh, are uh, eliminated. Uh, and, and this is one of the processes I study in the book, ghettoization of, of the Muslims. But they are also fighting law of jihad. And this is a different story. They are fighting against the fact that, according to them, Muslim boys try to seduce and convert Hindu girls. So they actively prevent Muslim boys to, to speak to Hindu girls, uh, especially on the university campuses. And third, last but not least, you have the cow protection movement, which is also implemented by similar vigilante groups, which are patrolling the highway, uh, as I said, um, checking uh, whether this truck is not uh, taking any cow uh, to the slaughterhouse, and when the truck driver is a Muslim, um, the risk of lynching is, is very, very much there. And we've seen many, many lynchings uh, over the last few years. What does it say? It says that the police is not doing its job. The police is not fighting the minorities either. The police just looks at the actions by vigilante groups, sponsored, organized, trained uh, by the Song Parivar. One of these groups I study in detail in the book is the Bajrang Dal, that is an official component of the Song Parivar, funded in, in, in 1984, and uh, made of young, you can say, lumpen elements, 
people who are from the upper caste most of the time but who don't have the modern education who don't speak english who are jobless and who have little self-esteem they acquire a new self-esteem by fighting for hinduism and sometimes they get a salary by doing it as well so we we have a parallel state that is um, making sure that india is an ethnic democracy because uh, de facto minorities cannot uh, enjoy the same rights and i and i've mentioned the muslims but christians uh, are, are also targeted uh, especially for another issue that is conversion uh, and and there there has been a big movement um, called um, garbapsi homecoming of reconversion to hinduism uh, and it's it was and it is implemented by the same vigilante groups Okay, thank you. Uh, we have touched the cultural aspects of the Hindu nationalism, let's say, uh, but uh, maybe uh, one question would be interesting, you know. Uh, if you take uh, the recent books of, for example, Pradeep Gupta, How India Votes, uh, or Prashant Jha, How the BJP Wins, they actually focus uh, on another aspects which are not as much cultural, uh, but they can bring the votes for the BJP, uh, such as the uh, emancipation of women, empowerment of the poor, you know, delivery of promises. Uh, if you take Prashant, th- this this is something what uh, Pradeep Gupta focuses on. If you take Prashant Jha, he talks about the charismatic leaderships and the ca- caste coalition. And actually they analyze the reasons why the people vote for the BJP. And now I would I would ask I would like to ask you because uh, it's not uh, it's not that obvious from the book. What do you think is the main reason of the success of Narendra Modi's BJP? Well, there is not one reason, and this is where the populists uh, get their strength from. They are like chameleons most of the time, and uh, they bring people, they they attract supporters from almost each and every caste, from each and every class, because they have a very uh, multivocal uh, attitude and, and, and discourses. In the case of, of Narendra Modi, charisma is indeed one of the main reasons why he uh, is so popular. And, and charisma is not is not something um, pertaining to virtues only. You know, the charismatic legitimacy, if you read Max Weber again, uh, is not the uh, legitimacy only virtuous men uh, conveys. Uh, the charismatic leader does exceptional things and exceptional things can be dramatic can be tragic uh, can be negative but wow you're mesmerized you're fascinated you're taken by surprise and narendra modi takes everybody by surprise all the time the withdrawal by the way of the farmers laws were completely unexpected what is done 
and that is especially especially dramatic uh, has been to supervise to preside over the 2002 pogrom uh, anti-muslim pogrom of gujarat the um, demonetization 2016 when he withdrew when he withdrew 85% of the um, money in circulation in one night or the Balakot strike when uh, the um, our Indian Air Force uh, attacked uh, a camp of jihadists in Pakistan in reaction to the Pulwama uh, terrorist attack. Um, then you can also add in in, in this list uh, abolition of article article 370 something nobody had dared to do before and, and that has uh, suppressed um, annihilated the autonomy of uh, jammu and kashmir so that's one major explanation that cross that 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 covers all kinds of social milieus but then you have also different social milieus finding different things for them in Modi's persona and action. Clearly, upper caste appreciated the way he diluted reservations, positive discrimination. You know, for the first time in 2019, he has introduced a quota of 10% in the public sector for upper caste and claiming that there are poor people among the caste as well and therefore they should have also a quota. Uh, that is a dilution of uh, the reservation uh, positive discrimination program uh, in India because uh, the, the ceiling, um, the, the revenue ceiling is so high that in fact any upper caste person is eligible to this quota. It's not for the poor people only, it's for the upper caste. One. Two, um, he has also, um, by having this pro-rich policy I had mentioned previously, uh, attracted middle-class people and, and, and sent a message saying, now we go by merit. Uh, we, don't, we don't assist the poor as much as we used to. But the poor vote for him as well. And that is what is so fascinating. You know, 30% of the poor people vote for Modi. The average is, well, vote for BJP and, and its allies. Um, the average um, voters, I mean, the average percentage of vote is 37. So it's not very much below the, the average. Why? Well, they vote for Modi for the reasons I've mentioned before. A pro-poor, uh, dignity-oriented uh, policy, a pro-poor discourse, and, and, and Modi speaks to the poor every month on radio. There is a program dedicated to that, Man Kibat, you know, uh, the, the, the words from the art, literally. Um, and he, he shows respect uh, for, for the poor. But there is another reason why the poor support Modi. And uh, it has to do with caste, because caste politics continue to play a major role. When you look at the discrimination programs in India, you, you realize that there is a paradox. And this, these programs are sometimes in place for 70 years. You know, you, you, the, the British introduced these first programs. And the idea was to discriminate positively in favor of the poorest of the poor, the most discriminated against, 
by giving them quotas in the education system, in the public sector, in the assemblies elected democratically. But of course, some groups have benefited more than others. So if you look at the, the Dalits, the ex-untouchables, the, 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 the lowest of the low, if you want, they are not a monolith, they are not a block. No, you have all kinds of subgroups. You know, you you have the chamars who are uh, skinning the the, the the cows and uh, uh, and do the leather work. Uh, you have the balmikis who are the sweepers. You have the katiks who are the meat cutters. You know, so many groups. Many of them did not benefit from these reservations, from these quotas. Because one of them tended to corner all the quotas. In the north, in Uttar Pradesh, the Chamars, who have changed their name, they are now known as Jatavs, have benefited more than others. And the others resent the Jatavs. And the Jatavs have their own political party, BSP. So there is no way a Balmiki will vote for the same party as a Jatav. And BJP is very good at co-opting Balmikis by, by nominating candidates at the time of elections coming from these poorest of the poor. So if the poorest of the poor vote for BJP, it's not because of BJP only. It's also because they are resenting the parties of the other dominant Dalit group. And this is the... Uh, caste dimension of, of, of this uh, uh, process. Um, the poor, the poorest of the poor, vote for BJP for caste reasons, for casteist reasons. And BJP has become a casteist party in many ways, you know, playing the caste equations at the state level, at the local level, in a very systematic manner, which is very paradoxical again, because they, they say, forget about the caste, think about yourself as a Hindu, but uh, when, when, when the caste arithmetic of a constituency matters, they really know how to nominate the right candidates. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, it seems that you know you are now you are elaborating something which is not even in the book, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is great. Uh, but back back to the book. Uh, You mentioned that uh, India's case is the first time in the 21st century uh, where the moderation th- thesis has lost and uh, the country uh, the country heads to further polarization uh, because of the democracy because of the democratic democratic competition the electoral competition and uh, The free elections uh, have actually reinfor- reinforced the radical version of uh, Hindutva. Uh, Why do you think this happened? Is there anything which is really specific and special on Narendra Modi which the uh, other populists in the democratic countries don't have? Or maybe the other way around, uh, is Narendra Modi's success something which can repeat in the other democratic countries? Definitely. I think it's a pattern. Uh, we, we are seeing a kind of wave of, of populism across the globe. And uh, there are many similarities, including that one. Um, Previously, in India, you had to dilute, to moderate your uh, extremist views for winning elections. 
So the Rudolphs in particular, uh, Lloyd Rudolph and, and Suzanne Rudolph, had shown that you had to be somewhat centrist for winning elections. This is completely the opposite today. You know, we have shifted from the moderation theory or thesis to uh, the polarization uh, thesis. You know, polarize is the best way for winning elections. And it's true in India, uh, it's true elsewhere. You know, when you see how the American uh, democratic scene has been polarized and remains polarized after the defeat of Trump, when you see polarization in Hungary, in Poland, in, well, Turkey, Israel, in fact, in these two countries, it's interesting. Polarization has become so strong that all the opponents of Netanyahu on the one hand and all the opponents on Erdogan on the other hand join hands, irrespective of their ideology. In Israel, you have a rainbow coalition supporting the prime minister that is completely heteroclite, completely heteroclite and, 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 and heterogeneous. That's polarization. So. We have a new regime that has crystallized, and these men, of course, are articulating uh, this polarization, but it's a reflection of, of, of deeper uh, process, uh, processes, uh, societal processes. And one of these processes has to do with um, the fear, the fear of losing out, you know, uh, especially in the developing countries. In the developing countries, the populists get the vote of anybody fearing to lose something. Uh, but it's true, it's true uh, in a different way in, in, in the developed world, where the populists can also exploit fear, uh, the, the fear of the other, the fear of the um, uh, migrants, mostly. Uh, and also the resentment vis-à-vis -vis the establishment, the establishment who, who have let them down. And, and that's why you have a rural dimension in, in, in populism in, in many developed countries, you know, the, the, those who feel abandoned in the countryside. And it, it's true in the U.S., it was true in U.K., the Brexit uh, vote was very telling. So we, we have shifted from moderation, centrism to polarization f because of the discourse of populists, but also because of social factors, which are very deep, but not the same uh, in, in each and every country. And that's why, that's why what we need to do is to, is to find out the specificity of this brand of populism and that brand of populism. And that's why I qualify these brands. And, and, and national populism is one of them, for instance. Uh, so there are varieties, varieties of, of, uh, of trajectories, but a, a common ground. Uh, that's why I say there is a new regime uh, that has crystallized, a new political regime. We shall also move to the role of opposition, because this is also something which all these populist regimes have in common. They were able and they succeeded in ousting the opposition, and not only from the 
from the point of the sheer power that uh, they they were able to control the state apparatus. They were also managed to let's say uh, to be the only one uh, who can uh, who can offer a kind of a vision to their voters, uh, which uh, the opposition parties are not able to compete. And this is precisely the case of India. Uh, you have like no ideal, no strong ideological opposition in India. Do you think that uh, the opposition at the, at this point can provide something like a counter ideology, counter ideology, counter narrative? Uh, for example, Partha Chatterjee was talking about the federalism as a as a possible counter narrative. Uh, what is in your in your opinion? What is the what is the way out for the opposition? How the opposition can manage to defeat the populists in the free elections? Yes, no, this is a very important question and this is the third part of the book in fact because the third part of the book is on uh, electoral authoritarianism. Uh, how this uh, regime um, initiated by populists uh, gradually transformed itself into an authoritarian regime. And uh, there are elections, of course there are elections because this is how the populist gets its legitimacy. He needs to get a popular mandate. But once he is in office, he will uh, make sure that uh, he will not lose election again. I mean, never, if possible. Um, he will resort to different stratagems, the populist always. One, he will claim, I am the people. So there is no space for the opposition. You know, the opposition is anti-national because they claim to fight him in spite of the fact they try to fight him in spite of the fact that he is the people, he is the nation. And this is one of the reasons why he will also uh, attack um, alternative power centers, uh, institutions, uh, including the judiciary, one of the first targets of uh, populist leaders always. You know, think about Orban again, think about Kaczynski again. The judiciary is always one of the first targets. It was the case in India as well. Other institutions, the election commission, uh, many, many others. And, and and there are many ways to destabilize these institutions. Um, you, 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 you let vacancies uh, go on forever. And if there is nobody at the helm of these places, they cannot do much. Or you appoint your own friends. Uh, and that's something every regime of that kind is very good at. Bureaucrats take side, like get politicized. Um, or you uh, blackmail people because they have a file on everybody and it's a surveillance state in many ways, in many, in many cases. And they intimidate IT raids, income tax raids, for instance, are, are very common in India uh, against politicians, um, against journalists as well. So you have this mix of charisma, popularity, I am the people, there's no space for the opposition, there is no legitimacy, and purely authoritarian methods. It's very difficult for the opposition in this context to exist. And uh, uh, they are also victims of uh, the fact that it's not, elections are not a level playing field. Uh, the kind of uh, money that the ruling party can spend 
is always much more than uh, the opposition parties because they have the crony capitalists behind them. So they have deep pockets behind them. Now, you ask the question, what can they do? What can the opposition do for being an alternative? Well, the only way out for me is twofold. Uh, to get united, to be united. And that's what I repeat uh, we saw in Israel and we are seeing in, in, in Turkey these days after 15 years. After 15 years, opposition leaders realize that, well, it's a survival question. If we do, do, if we do not join hands, we will, we will not survive. Indian political parties are very far from this realization. And, and divisions and egos remain very strong. But the other um, possibility is to invent an alternative repertoire, which cannot, which may not be introduced or supported by the parties, but by civil society itself. And the farmers' movement is is an interesting one because you see how. It's not because of religion, it's not because of identity politics that you get mobilized, it's because of socio-economic issues. And the alternative to Hindutva, to Hindu nationalism, the most effective alternative that we can think of is that one. Uh, socio-economic issues becoming again dominant in the political arena. That may be the next step. Uh, the farmers' movement may have shown the way, but um, Narendra Modi and BJP will also be very good at hijacking this alternative. Uh, this is what we will see in the coming months and, 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 and years, definitely. We will see how BJP is able to adjust to a new scenario because the economy is in a very bad shape. Post-COVID-19, uh, India is not an emerging country anymore. 270 million people have been sent back to poverty, uh, as many as those who had been uplifted from poverty in the previous 10 years. Unemployment is all pervasive. And we have, uh, even in the countryside, um, people who are um, going back to till the land. This, we, have, we have an amazing phenomenon of people leaving the cities for going back to villages to make a living. So, in this context, how does BGP survive? Indudva will not be sufficient. And, and my, f my, my urge is that uh, they will resort to caste politics in the first place. And, and, and this is an indication I get from the last reshuffles. Uh, Modi's government uh, and the government of Uttar Pradesh have been reshuffled in the past few months. And what we've seen is a new caste politics. There was a majority of upper caste ministers in Modi's government till then. He has inducted many low caste people. And again, low caste people coming from non-dominant low caste. Huh? As I said, you have to distinguish different subgroups uh, among the low caste. So that's, that's the, that the, 
the adjustment uh, and whether that will be enough remains to be seen. But it's an interesting transformation because we are shifting already, because of the ruling party, from a purely identity-based politics to a somewhat more social-oriented uh, politics. Okay, and uh, maybe my last question would be, couldn't it be vice versa? Cannot uh, the farmer protests, uh, which lasted for more than a year, cannot they establish like a new sense of um, peasant identity, something you were also talking about in your previous books about uh, Chamar Singh and uh, the leaders of the farmers in, in UP? Uh, Cannot this be just a step to form the new identity, identity which would overrule the caste, uh, caste dimension and caste divisions? Certainly, that's another possibility. And in fact, uh, uh, if BJP uh, indulges in caste politics, uh, indeed, the opposition parties will be well advised, would be well advised uh, not to follow the same route, but uh, focus on purely socioeconomic issues. In fact, class based issues and uh, this urban rural divide uh, that was indeed what Charan Singh did uh, in the 60s 70s 80s when when peasants were a force to reckon with certainly um, but again I don't think parties will initiate this movement civil society will do it and uh, what will be very interesting will be to see what the farmers movement becomes um, what the peasant unions do uh, in, in the coming weeks and months. Will they uh, somewhat uh, tell peasants how to vote in Uttar Pradesh in February or March? Because these indications will be very interesting so far as the alternative to BGP is concerned for the, for the coming uh, elections. So it seems that it will be as usual that Uttar Pradesh will show the way for the whole India. Inevitably, when you have so many seats in one state, you know, 80 seats out of four, 544, it's a huge proportion. So the winner in Uttar Pradesh, um, because usually there is one winner only, um, as, as a big say in, in the politics of the country. Okay, thank you, Professor Jaffrelot. It was a great talk. Thank you. Maybe tell us uh, at the very end, what is your next plan? Uh, which book are you planning to write the next? Well, the next book is precisely on, on this question of uh, the farmers. Uh, with one of my colleagues, Kalai Yarasan, we are looking at why do a dominant caste of cultivators asking for the status of OBCs. Why do they want uh, positive discrimination? They were very proud of uh, being independent and be on their own. But uh, clearly the um, agricultural crisis that is affecting them uh, has pushed them in this direction. So we, 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 com we, we compare uh, four, four states, uh, Gujarat, uh, Ariana, Maharashtra and, and uh, Andhra Pradesh uh, from this point of view. This is a book uh, uh, hopefully for next year. Okay, good luck with the book. Thanks again for the interview and uh, 
maybe we shall meet each other in India, maybe in Uttar Pradesh. <laughs> hey, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Okay, so see you there and uh, have a nice evening. Thank you. Thank you.